This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. And we start the show this morning talking about the homelessness count. This happened yesterday, or the information, excuse me, was released yesterday. The first time a homelessness count has been done in the Metro Vancouver area in three years. And I think uh, no surprise to anybody, the numbers are up. But I was a bit shocked by how much they were up. 32% throughout the Lower Mainland. And uh, one of the areas that was hit hardest by homelessness West Vancouver and North Vancouver, uh, 39% increase since 2020. That's big. Here now to discuss is uh, West Vancouver MLA, Karen Kirkpatrick. Thanks so much for being here this morning. I really appreciate it. Hi, Scott. Thanks for asking me. So how do you feel about this? Were you surprised to to hear that number 39% up uh, over the last three years? I wasn't um, completely surprised that there's more homelessness on the North Shore than people expected. Uh, but yeah, definitely with that, that big an increase, um, that definitely indicates we've got some significant housing and mental health issues, both on the North Shore, but it was 34% uh, in the Lower Mainland, and that's pretty significant as well. No question. I think that, you know, like I, like I said, I agree with you that nobody was surprised that the number has gone up. We've been hearing about this kind of everywhere uh, over the last three years that this is getting worse as cost of uh, living, affordability, uh, h- housing, obviously all way into into these type of things and I think yes we're absolutely seeing it but man the the numbers are big it's a it's a big number and speaks to a, a bigger problem and to your point there's no space that's um immune from this you know you think about north van and even west van and how far out they are you have to cross bridges to get there um, but they're not immune either this is a thing that affects all of us isn't it yeah, it, it's affecting every British Columbian right now. If you look at the report that was released, um, it's not surprising that people are saying the reason for their housing loss, 24%, it's substance use issue. 16%, it's a mental health issue. Uh, so uh, seven years and uh, two terms with this government with commitments to actually provide more resources, it hasn't happened. There's simply not enough support for people in community, for people in recovery. And that's a really big um, driver for people not being able to, to find housing or losing housing. Uh, and then there simply just isn't enough housing. British Columbia is just not keeping up with the numbers that it needs to be creating housing to keep up with our population. So what would you like to see done as a way to uh, combat this? Obviously, providing housing is a, is a huge factor, but we know that that's complicated and probably a bit far off in terms of timeline. What would you like to see done in the immediate to sort of help these people? Well, it, 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 we say it's off in the, the, in the future, but it, it shouldn't be because they, we saw the trends, uh, you know, 2017, 2018, 
um, and not enough was done to actually provide more housing into the system. And so we're, we're, you know, seven years behind where we should be in terms of building that housing. Uh, we need to reduce the cost of housing. And when I say that, I mean, it seems obvious we have to reduce the cost of housing. But there's a lot of things that government controls that actually adds to the cost of creating housing. And ultimately, that gets passed on to the renter or to the purchaser. Um, and that are all the development costs that are added on. It's the taxes that are added on. Uh, and so what can government do to help incentivize and reduce the cost of actually getting construction done? Um, that's something that they've got some control over. And then creating recovery spaces and support spaces for people with mental health and substance abuse issues. There's not enough work being done on creating recovery. Detox and recovery is missing. Yeah, I certainly agree with you on that, that the recovery part is huge, that people need support right now, as opposed to thinking about, hey, build, building housing and, you know, all of those solutions that are, are important and are good, but are, you know, a timeline thing. I'm, I'm concerned with how we support these people right now. Um, another thing that I think is kind of out there, I know I'm a, sort of aware of this in, in my own neighborhood. I live in North Vancouver, and um, there's kind of this attitude amongst the public that we homeless people or homelessness, people who are unhoused, it, there's a, it seems sort of burdensome, you know, we're aware of it, but everybody kind of tries to avoid it. And it's, how can we change our attitude towards these people and start to see them as uh, equals, human beings, people as deserving of homes as we are? Because I I know it's it's frustrating when you walk down your street and you find needles and garbage. And I'm not saying that everyone who is unhoused is using those type of things, but we do know that substance abuse is a part of this and these things kind of run sort of parallel. How do we create more sympathy amongst the public for this issue? We have to create faces on these people and faces for the public to see. Um, I mean, how many of us, we avert our eyes when we're walking by someone who looks like they're homeless or, or they're struggling. Um, and so many people, I mean, it is the, it, it, there are more people who are unhoused because um, I was talking to a teacher, uh, a, a gentleman who lost his wife. Um, he was very depressed. He then lost his job. Uh, He's worked hard all his life. He's in his 60s and found himself financially unable to continue to to pay a mortgage and lost their house. Um, So these are the people that we're finding are are there and that need our supports. Uh, So I do think, you know, let's all of us try and say hello to somebody when we walk by them instead of averting our eyes and pretending that we don't see them. Um, and we're only seeing the people that are more overt and obvious who are out on the street. One thing that this point in time um, housing count doesn't uh, take into account are all of those families who are precariously housed, uh, who are couch surfing. Some other jurisdictions actually do a survey in schools to try and identify families who are facing homelessness because those are not... Um, as obvious, they're harder to count, but I'm going to, you know, think that based on everything that's happening now, those numbers have probably increased significantly and we're unaware of it. Yeah, no question. Um, it's a really heartbreaking issue and it's one that is complicated and in some cases it's difficult to, to face it down, but you're absolutely right. And I love that you say, even just saying hello and treating people with a bit of dignity goes a long way. We might not have the ability to find a house for that person, but 
but we can show up and just, you know, treat people with basic human decency and, and respect because, you know, th they're human beings just like us. Uh, a complicated issue that, that we're facing here in the lower mainland, and it's not going to be easy to get ahead of it, but there is there is something that we can do. And, um, yeah, thank you for the work that you're doing and, um, appreciate all of your, all of your time. Appreciate you calling in this morning. It's Karen Kirkpatrick. She's a BC United MLA for West Vancouver Capilano. Thanks Scott. You have a great day. We're talking about. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. View cones. This is something that has been in the news lately, but it has it's been there for a long time. Like if you lived in Vancouver for any amount of time, you know that this kind of thing comes up and then goes away and then comes up and then goes away, though it never really goes away because, as you know, we have a housing crunch in the lower mainland, particularly here in Vancouver. Here now to weigh in on the view cones is Melody Ma. She's from Save Our Skyline YVR. Hi, Melody. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me today. Tell me about what you do with Save Our Skyline. We are a campaign to stop mayor and council to, from eroding our view cones. Um, I'm so disappointed that the entire city council voted to remove our view cones. There are very few cities in the entire world, like you say, where we have have mountains and oceans, and Vancouver is one of them. And this motion is a directional move to remove these view cones, to privatize our public views and selling them out to real estate developers. So with Save Our Skyline YVR, we are aiming to stop mayor and council from privatizing our public asset. Okay. Now I understand how you are framing that as privatizing them. Like I, I I definitely get that, right? If you give that development space to a real estate developer, they're going to put a place up there and that place is going to be worth a lot more money because all the building, all the units in it are going to have a view. So they sell for more, the company makes more. I, I completely understand that. Do you understand that for the average person, they see this as those who can afford it, get the view and those who can't don't. Yeah. I, I mean, I was on a bus ride yesterday and someone, the, an average person of Vancouver in this bus actually stood up to look at a passing by mountain view. And he said, I'm prompted. I love looking at the mountains every time I get a chance because it brings me peace. The city gets 
to be too much sometimes. So it goes to show that even if it's a passing moment, these view cones, these mountain views are so important to the livability of Vancouver. It's why the average person lives in Vancouver. It is what makes the city livable and why we stay here despite the cost of living. But there's a whole bunch of people that who the average people that the city's not livable because of the cost of living. So they're all, they're already being forced out and, you know, eliminating view cones would allow for more development, more housing. And if this is a supply and demand issue, ultimately that should bring the cost of housing down. Like at, at the barest level, it does feel like views or housing. It's not a question about views or housing. We can have both, and we have created a city where we can have views and housing. This is not an affordability question. This will not create affordable housing. A past planning director of Vancouver, Larry Beasley, who actually helped create the view home policies, has said that this motion is an empty measure when it comes to creating affordable housing, and it will only benefit land speculators. You are taking views that thousands of people actually enjoy every single day for free. And when you put a building to cover it, only, like you say, only those people who are in those buildings who see the mountains will be able to see it. So, yeah, you're going to create housing, but the type of housing you're going to create is only for the wealthiest and richest people in the world. But, I mean, it, that's true. I think that it will be for the wealthy and the rich unless we densify to the, to the point that, you know, we actually make a dent in this whole thing. And increase the supply so drastically, and I get I'm speaking in hyperbole as well, we increase the supply so drastically that those places don't have that same value, and anyone can live there, or the other option is to legislate some of those units to be low-cost housing. Look, developers already get something called density transfers that compensate them for any view cone impacts. So... Like Larry Beasley, the past planning director of Vancouver, who created these view cones, said, existing zoning allowances are already high enough and you don't need to open these view corridors to generate more housing. Okay, so you said that you it's not an issue of views versus housing. And I'm glad that you said that because I, I do agree that um, it's possible to have both. And I do agree that, you know, like we're sort of dealing in subtleties here. But, you know, you talk about how we're one of the only places in the world that has these type of views. We're also one of the only places in the world that has such an extreme housing crisis, you know. And I think we need a full court press in terms of our the way that we try to fix this thing. And I think that it's not an issue of developing downtown versus on Fairview Slopes or downtown versus East Van. I think we need to do all of those things. I think the housing problem is so drastic that we need to do all of those things. The mountains will still be there. The ocean will still be there. And I would simply say to the people who are, you know, losing their view, you just need to go for a walk. You just need to go for a walk and find a place where you have a better view. Go to the ocean, go to the beach, go to the mountains. What do you say to that? Look, the the views are not going to be there. This is the problem that we are facing right now. This is the issue we're talking about right now. Our mayor and council wants to cover these views that are observable in public places, like on bridges, like in plazas, like in major transit points, so that we don't get to see the mountains anymore. And a city where it is unaffordable and the rents are exorbitant, we should be 
fighting for these mountain views to remain because they become even more necessary since this is a public amenity that we get to enjoy for free. So how, what do you propose in terms of fixing housing then? I am here to say, oh, actually, I do actually have a proposal. Yesterday, we saw the homeless count go up. A great proposal would be actually take one of these waterfront properties that the Vancouver Police Department is using to store their cars right underneath the Canby Street Bridge, and let's put temporary modular housing there. That will actually put a dent in this housing crisis, not privatizing our public views so that only the wealthiest people can live here. Yeah, there, I know the space you're talking about by the Canby Bridge there. I think there's a lot of space there. Why couldn't we do both? Yeah, exactly. Let's put temporary modular housing there and let's keep our views so that people who live there also can enjoy the free public mountain views because there is actually a, several view cones right there. Yeah, I see. I'm saying that we could have temporary modular housing there and have some real estate development there, which includes, you know, low cost market value uh, units to also help people find permanent housing as opposed to just temporary modular housing. Uh, it's a complicated issue. Melody Moss, she's with Save Our Skyline YVR. I really do appreciate you coming in or being on the show this morning and uh, sharing your viewpoint because these are things that we're going to have to work out. You know, it's, it is complicated. Like, we all do love living here. It's a fantastic place with fantastic views. And I don't want to take that away from people, but I think that for me, it sort of boils down to this issue of uh, we need housing at all costs. And if it means that we lose the views in some cases, then I think that that's what that means. Because housing, (laughs) people are going to get more peace of mind having less unhoused people on the street and more housing and cheaper rent than they are from looking at the mountains. That's, That's my two cents. Thank you so much for your time, Melody. Really appreciate it. And joining us now is Brad West, mayor of Port Coquitlam. Hi, Mayor West. Thanks for being here again this week. Having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So we were talking earlier this week, you and I, and we spoke with some listeners and some other people as well, about what was sort of perceived to be an increase in youth violence in the Tri-Cities and other places in the Lower Mainland. And we talked a lot about um, reasons for that and perceptions and how complicated some of these issues can be. And a lot of people sort of weighed in with uh, different opinions and different ideas for uh, solutions and how to combat that. And it feels, at least to me, that one of the things that is almost unanimous amongst everyone that I talk to is that a big part of the problem here that could be changed and isn't is the release of these chronic offenders that's happening in our our justice system. And this happened this week as well. Uh, A 36-year-old who has more than 30 prior convictions, including assault and assault with a weapon, has been released from the justice system back into the public. I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you you just, your mind is blown um, because you wonder what more is it going to take Why is the system that we have in place so content with rolling the dice with people's lives and the safety of the public? We have seen this time and time again, and whenever it happens, people are rightfully outraged. You get a politician stand up and says, this is unacceptable, and I'm going to order a review of what's happening, and then nothing changes. Nothing changes, and they they hope that we're going to forget And the machine just keeps on turning. I mean, this individual, you know, uh, 30 convictions 
30 prior convictions and is released again and again and again, assaults a young woman with a weapon, seriously injuring her in the morning, lights a car on fire in the afternoon, arrested, convicted, released. Yeah. What, I mean, what good is that doing the individual? I mean, this, no this is an individual who is clearly sick, who, yeah. who clearly is not capable of controlling themselves. And so, Brad, why why do we just let these people back out? Is it because there's not enough room to, to keep them in the jail? Are they just the least violent of all of the violent offenders or their, their names on a list somewhere? What is the, the law or the thinking or the rationale? What, like, why is this happening when it seems so clear to all of us that it shouldn't be? Well, I, I think it is because of num- a number of changes that were made in the past decade to, to federal laws in particular that have prioritized release over detention. Uh, and, and that has been the general trajectory over the last decade or so. There is a view that maybe the system was too harsh or was keeping people locked up too long. And so uh, through legislation and through directives to, to justices and to courts and to prosecutors, the message has been sent that except for the most egregious cases, and even in those cases, sometimes people get released, that you should be favoring release over detention. And I think the pendulum has swung way too far in that direction to the point now where innocent people in our community are getting hurt. I mean, you, you think about it. This is, these are unprovoked. You know, I, I'm, I'm a father to two young children. You know, I, I think of my wife. Um, imagine your family member minding their business, doing nothing wrong, and all of a sudden being attacked without warning, their life being altered forever. In some cases, you losing them. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is just so unconscionable what is being allowed to happen. And it's so damn frustrating that it happens over and over again. And all I hear from the politicians in charge at the provincial or federal level is, geez, that's awful. Thoughts and prayers. Let me go find some retired person in the judiciary system to review how this happened. They produce a report. It comes six months or a year after. The public has moved on to another issue and nothing changes. Yeah, it, something has to change. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking with Bill Thielman earlier about uh, some of the drug cha- the changes to the drug laws in public places, uh, and he sort of we compared our system to some other systems around the world. And we talked about uh, I think it's in Portugal where their system is is rehabilitative, and I think the heart of that is sort of similar to what you're talking about when we talk about why we have this problem that it favors release over detention. We want to ideally be able to give people back dignity and and support as opposed to punishing them for mental health and addiction issues. But we're not rehabilitating anyone. This person has not been rehabilitated, you know? So I think the heart is in the right place. It's like we shouldn't be 
punishing people for mental health issues, but we also shouldn't be letting them back out onto the street. So like you mentioned, it was like this decision was made and a change was made however many decades ago. Again, why can't we just change it back? It seems like we all agree. Every politician agrees. Every person in the public agrees. Why can't we just change it back? Well, we can. I mean, it it requires some legislative amendments, and there's been people who have been pushing for that and speaking out for it. Uh, The provincial government, to their credit, has said to the federal government, along with other provinces, that there's a massive need for changes to bail, and they have pushed bail reform. The federal government promised that they were going to do it, and then didn't introduce the bill before they adjourned parliament during the last session. So, you know, there's always an excuse. They never seem to to get to it. Um, You know, I I certainly agree. Like, there's nothing good that's happening for, you know, these individuals who are obviously clearly sick. Um, You know, they're not getting the help they need. But let's also not lose sight of the fact that uh, there also has to be accountability, And if you are a violent offender, there should be a punishment. I, you know, the justice system is supposed to be able to do a number of things depending on the severity of the crime. And sometimes, you know, I'll put, I'll describe it this way. Sometimes people who are on the maybe bleeding heart side of things think that, well, the only thing that have happened is this person, you know, gets rehabilitated and released. And rehabilitation needs to be a part of it, but so does accountability and punishment. Sure, particularly, yeah, absolutely. Particularly when someone violently assaults or kills another individual. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I it hasn't say, been that long ago about... that we were dealing with a case where uh, an individual walked away from uh, Colney Farm Forensic Institute in the backyard of my community, uh, who was in there because of killing his own daughter, mm-hmm. yeah, released on a day pass and goes on a stabbing spree in Chinatown. Yeah, absolutely. And we're all, you know, you're totally right. And I, I just want to be, when I talk about rehabilitation, of course, there should be uh, punishment uh, for crime. I'm not talking about rehabilitation as opposed to these type of things. I'm talking about yeah. you, you do your time, but when the time is up, hopefully you're also rehabilitated so that if we do decide to let you come back out in public, we know these things aren't going to happen again. But it seems like we're missing we're missing the target on, on both sides of that, right? It just seems like such a colossal failure and a waste of resources. You know, we're spending yeah. all this time chasing people down, arresting them, booking them, that will tie up of the courts, all of these things, just to have them back out on the street 24 hours later. Like, we could be actually serving the public and doing something with all of those resources, right? I think you're absolutely right, and I can tell you, it is incredibly frustrating for police. Yeah. I mean, imagine having to arrest the same person over and over and over and over again. And and that is the reality, by the way, of what we're dealing with. We're talking about a relatively small percentage of the population. But that small percentage of the population is having a huge impact on the rest of us uh, because of the degree of the prolific crime. Uh, and the inability for this system to 
seemingly do anything to get them onto a different path uh, or to at least detain them so the public isn't at risk. Uh, It's why I actually take the position that our system seems to be beyond reform. Mm. Like just tinkering at the edges doesn't seem like it's going to cut it. It, it, it. You know, this is, I guess, a bit bold, but I think you need to, you need to blow the thing up and start from scratch uh, because it just seems to be so out of whack with reality. And it, and it also seems to have just a, this kind of deep-seated, systemic, innate problem with, within its culture well, I think that, that this is just the way it works. Yeah, and I think Brad, that anyone who's actually taken a look at the thing would be hard pressed not to to agree with you. You know, and you talk about bold solutions. I think we need bold solutions. Uh, Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West talking about chronic offenders and uh, you know the draw that that is on the system and the need for something different. Thanks so much for your time, Mayor West. Always appreciate it. Appreciate you having me on. We're going into a long weekend, and it is also Thanksgiving. Family, friends, and food. And I am so excited because I have two, yes, two amazing Thanksgiving dinners that I am going to. I love to eat. I'm not much of a cook, but I am so thankful for the people that do cook. And if that's you, here now with some amazing advice and tips is the founder and president of Gourmet Warehouse, Son Hastings. Love it there. Karen McSherry, thanks so much for being here, Karen. Hey, my pleasure. I love talking turkey yeah. and all things food. That's what I do. So we can just roll with this. I Any questions that our, our um, listeners have, I'm happy to answer. But um, we can just kick it off with yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. sort of basics. So, well, let me um, ask you I this. Learned- so, well, okay. So I want to I want to interrupt you for before we even get going because, uh, like, I love turkey, and I mentioned I'm going to two different Thanksgiving dinners uh, this weekend. And at one, yes, we are having turkey, but then at the other, there will be no turkey. They're having beef Wellington instead. Mm. Is that at at first I felt like I should clutch my pearls? You know, is this how <laughs> in, how how crazy is that? Are people shifting away? From Turkey, like the house that I'm going to, where they're serving the beef Wellington, it's this, um, it's my it's my sister and her husband, and they're very they're very hip, they're very in touch. They shop at Gourmet Warehouse. They they sh- they, they know what's going on in the in the culinary world. Is there a, a move away from traditional things like turkey towards other options, or is that just you know kind of a, a rarity? You know what? It can be. If I was invited and somebody was saying, "Please sit yourself down at my table." Uh, I'll bring wine, I'll bring whatever you ask, and you're doing all the work, the shop, the prep, the clean, the set, the table, the flowers, all of that. I don't care what you serve as long as you make it taste good. So turkey is the tradition, and people break away, young people sort of break away from tradition. I won't lie to you or our listeners in saying that turkey dinner is probably one of the most time-consuming dinners that you can prepare I'm a chef. I have done more turkey dinners in my life than I can even recall. But it is my, are you ready? My least favorite thing to do. Yeah, see, so when you hear the idea of like, oh, maybe maybe in the future it would be, Okay, to do something else like a, a well, exactly. a beef Wellington. Like you get that's kind of like a nice idea. It's like a bit refreshing, right? 
Yes, and and you can prepare. Turkey dinner is daunting, and it's not because it's difficult. The difficulty isn't in that. It's the difficulty in the timing, because absolutely everything has to come out together and be hot. So that is the part that just makes people crazy and go, you know what, I'm going to do beef wellington, or I'm going to do lamb chops, or I'm going to, it really doesn't matter what you do, because the thought of getting everybody together is the main reason for Thanksgiving. It's giving thanks to food and good things and beautiful things, and in my grandma's day and my mom's day, that was all they ever did, but it's, we're very modern now, and you know, when they bring that Wellington out and they start slicing it, everything else is in accordance, and it's not so hard. Wellington yeah. was, can be done the day before. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, I mean, you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter what they prepare. I'm going to be grateful for it no matter what. And by the way, 604-280-9898, if you have a question for Karen about preparing turkey dinner, we're going to get to that in a sec. But you mentioned the, the time that it takes to put together a, a turkey dinner. And we've all seen family members and loved ones sort of go through this, or maybe it's been us that have had, had to do this ourselves. Do you, what's your like top tip to stay on top of that? Is it just about getting oh, up early and giving yourself enough time to prep? It, like, do you do stuff ahead of time? Like you okay, mentioned, you can do best. it to be. Well, how yeah. do you how do you manage it, Karen? Well, if today's Friday. If you're hosting Sunday, today's Friday. You want to be setting your table. You want to get the table set done check that off. That's done. So when people come in, they know that you're actually expecting them. You're not setting the table as they walk through the door because then they don't feel that they're loved or welcome. So you want that table done. You know, your little decorations, your pumpkins, your fall leaves, whatever your decor is, that's done. Then you want to bring out all your serving dishes. So you're going to make your menu, turkey, stuffing, gravy, um, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, like whatever you, your, your list of what you love, your gravy boats, all of that stuff and then you put little post-it notes in all of those dishes and then you get a stack of aprons maybe three aprons and you put them beside all the serving dishes and then when your guests come in the the nice ones will say hey anything I can do to help and you just give them that apron that you've got right there waiting for them and you say absolutely you know and then when all the things start coming together and they look at it and there's the pot with the cauliflower cheese sauce and they go what do you want to do with it well you sure don't want them to put it in the bowl the little bowl that was for the cranberry sauce and when everything is marked with the post-it note they know exactly what to do and you're busy finishing a your gravy or getting that the bird is resting ask for volunteers who's a good carver that's a starter and and get them on that because that is the part it's the gravy the carving the sides and that is where you the the hostess sits down and just takes a deep breath and says i just need a drink yeah absolutely you (laughs) you karen sound extremely organized the post-it notes for for the various dishes that is a tip that i had not heard yet that is smart you just have to remember to take the post-it note out before you put the before Mm -hmm. you put the stuff in right nobody wants to be eating post-it but of course like anyone who who knows what they're doing in a kitchen would would know that what side dish do you think is the most important because i've also seen this where people are preparing and you know planning blocking out the meal how it's all going to go and they realize we've got enough we have enough things there's always extra there's always leftovers you know what we don't need the brussels sprouts or we don't need the scallop potatoes if you had to toss one keep one where do you sort of view the sides in the hierarchy here okay so 
100% stuffing, 100% mashed potatoes, because yep, yep. gravy goes with mashed potatoes. Gravy doesn't go with roasted potatoes. It needs to make that puddle. You need the good puddle and the, you know. So then you choose your favorite veg and go in season and try to choose things that you can prepare ahead of time. A lot of people like squash. Well, you could do your your squash dish, and you could pure, cook it, puree it, mix it, get it, get you know, fill it in. We can talk about that if the, uh, our listeners want to learn a good squash recipe. And it can already be in the bowl, ready to go, and then it just gets reheated day of. So there's that's checked off your list. So you try to avoid the things that need last minute attention. Do a cauliflower gratin again. Do it the day before in your dish. Check off your list. Boom, done. And then your last minute stuff is pulling the stuffing out of the bird, making the gravy, carving, and getting everything on the table in a, in a manner that is hot. And I would suggest a buffet every time. Let people get up. They've done nothing all day. They're you're the one that's stressed. Let them help themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Karen McSherry, she is founder and president of the Gourmet Warehouse with some fantastic tips on getting ready for Thanksgiving, the big day coming on Sunday. We're talking about turkey. We're talking Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner and all things related to it. Karen McSherry is the founder and president of the Gourmet Warehouse. She is here taking your call 604-280-9898 if you have any questions. But before we get to that, I have a question, Karen. I got into a debate with a friend earlier this week about what pie is the greatest pie and the answer is obviously pumpkin right she tried to tell me that apple is better than pumpkin especially on a fall holiday like thanksgiving and there's just no way that that's true oh you're so cute pumpkin pie is 100 percent the the most popular but apple pie is giving it a run for the money so it's either pumpkin or apple. Pumpkin is synonymous because it's fall, it's pumpkin season. You use the pumpkins to cook down and make, most people buy canned pumpkin when they make a pumpkin pie, but apple pie comes a close second. I mean, I'll just buy the whole pie. I could just eat and it, eat buy it, just okay. eat the whole pie. You know, Everybody you put a little whipped cream a good on there. Eater, Scott. Hey, yeah. And I am this, and this is uh, actually, I'm very good at this part of the uh, of the Thanksgiving dinner as well. Strategizing how much to eat because it's very easy to stuff yourself during the dinner portion because it's all so good. But I know to save some room. You know, I know to save some room because exactly. if we get to we get to dessert and people are like, oh, I'll just have a small piece because they don't want to be rude. That's not me. I indulge no, when dessert I'm, comes. I'm in. But here's a good thing for our listeners to know, because um, when you do dinner and you have dinner, you always want to have a couple of appetizers out. The only dinner that you ever do not, do not, it's a do not nothing, not a chip, not a peanut, you give nothing. They're, they're coming, they're hungry. Turkey dinner is a big meal and you've stressed for two days getting it all together and you want it lovely. And the last thing you want people to do is go, well, I'm not that hungry now. I've just had your incredible charcuterie tray. Oh, yeah. put that out because they come hungry. I come to a, I would come to your house hungry. I'm not coming, you know, after I've just had a late lunch. You, you come anticipating a lovely meal. So, Turkey dinner is a very filling dinner, and it, you only do it maybe once a year, twice a year, and and when you do it, you want it to be festive and fabulous, and you want people, you know, filling up. So 
no appetizers, no charcuterie tray. That is a really great point as well that I think uh, doesn't get addressed enough. I love a good charcuterie. I love cheese, crackers. I love the, like this sort of, of standing course. around social eating type of thing. But so often I have gone to a hosted dinner and they have a wonderful spread laid out. And, you know, you get social kind of standing around the kitchen island or whatever and you sort of start yes. eating. And then, yeah, an hour later, they serve up this great meal and you've kind of like, oh, I'm kind of eating oh, half. Oh, and I'm kind of getting full and you feel like a little bit rude and stuff. So that's a really great point. And we shouldn't be bothered by that. We should know that there's an intention behind not putting out a charcuterie board or an appetizer. This is on purpose so that we really place a value on the actual meal. You know, a nice glass of bubbly when people come in. And you know what? Make sure that that by your invite is dinner doesn't follow two hours later. You know, you be gauge it so that your meal is going to come out within about 50 to 60 minutes after they arrive. So everybody gets their coats off, has a glass of bubbles or whatever, glass of wine. You have all that set up. You assign somebody to, to do the drink station, and then you're busy getting everything ready, and then, boom, it's done. And then all the festivities and all the chat can, is around the table. And then, of course, then you, you wait a while for dessert. Let everybody digest and linger so your your evening goes a little bit on the on the back side of your dinner rather than the foreside in normal circumstances where it's appetizers and cocktails and then you wait and then dinner's served in this instance dinner's served earlier but you linger later because you hold the dessert because everybody's got a turkey belly sure yeah and that's smart as well okay we got a text here 331 buzz is our buzz line number you can call and leave a message there or you can text the buzz line and it comes right into a screen right in front of me here. Uh, Someone asking, I need to know the secret to making perfect mashed potatoes. And this is a great question because mashed mashed potatoes, they're very inconsistent, right? You have one somewhere and it's a bit lumpy. Somewhere else it's a bit smooth. Some have garlic in them. I know people like add things to kind of try to zest it up. What do you, what's your secret to perfect mashed potatoes, Karen? Perfect mashed potatoes are the potato. I like to use um, Yukon Golds. They're a little bit creamier and they're not so dry. So you're going to peel your Yukon Golds. You're going to cube them. You're going to boil them in plenty of salted water. Potatoes like salt. So you want the salted water. You're going to pierce them so that they're cooked through. There's no such thing as al dente when it comes to mashed potato. That's where you get your lumps that don't go away. So they have to be per- not not so that they're waterlogged and overdone, but but an easily pierced. Then either you're going to take a ricer if you've got one and rice those potatoes, or you're going to just put them in in a in a mixer, your your KitchenAid or your your food like a and and spin them so that they're nice and light and fluffy. And then to that you're going to add, and here's my secret: either 250 grams of sour cream or 250 grams of mascarpone cheese, along with about maybe three or four tablespoons of butter, and you're going to whip that together, salt, pepper, the deliciousness that comes out of that because of the richness of either A, the sour cream, or the mascarpone, or you could do half-half, brings those potatoes to this lovely, fluffy, intensely rich potato that you go, why do these taste so good? because I've just added magic and then put the gravy on and notice we're talking gravy, not sauce. This is the only time that that, that 
pan juice that turns into a sauce is called the gravy, and that's for turkey. Okay, got it. Now, this is another one that I know a lot of people sort of get uh, a little bit confused about. I am one of these. What wine do you serve with turkey? Like normally, I think red, but I've seen people serving white. Do you? Where do you net out on that? I I always offer both. I always offer both, and I will offer a Sauve Blanc and a Chardonnay in the whites, and then maybe a Pinot or something lighter, not a really heavy, you know, full-bodied Cabernet, but I do like maybe a Pinot or maybe um, a Chianti, something like that that isn't too heavy, 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 because the turkey dinner is heavy and rich in itself. So those two things, and then you could also, you know, Prosecco would be something that you could also, that would be your starter, but you could carry through with that. Fantastic. Karen McSherry is the founder and president of the Gourmet Warehouse. Thank you for joining us this morning and for all your information. And uh, I wish you a very, very happy Thanksgiving, and we'll hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.